This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Oh, here we go, boys. Go. Ooh, I love that sound. This is a good one. Welcome to the Full Scale Outdoors Waterfall Wednesday edition. I'm your host, Smith Johnson, being joined by Dale Luganville, being brought to you by, as always, by Four Loco. <laughs> yeah, woo! Four <laughs> deep into Four Loco. Let's go. Jesus Christ, man. Could you imagine that? Oh, my God. My heart would explode. <laughs> I couldn't make up my mind between the caffeine and the alcohol. It's like, well, should I run a 5K or should I just take an eight-hour nap? I don't know what to do right now. Okay, now here's the thing. I thought that like uh, they took the caffeine out of alcohol or out of four loco. Well, then there's no loco in the four. Then it's just super alcoholic. It's like fourteen percent. It's like the same as wine. It's just I feel I feel like we've talked about this before on the podcast. I don't think so. Just just do shots then. Just to, like drink straight vodka if you just want to get fucked up. Like and also like how are they gonna like make it illegal to have. Uh, alcohol mixed with caffeine when you can still order a vodka Red Bull at any bar you go to. Or a Yag Bomb. Like, what the hell? Like, right. What are you talking about? So dumb. I don't know. Anyways, um, let's start out with some waterfall related stuff. Then we can maybe do a little bit of pigeon stuff and then back to waterfall related stuff. Got it. Let's, okay. I got a couple. I know we had a theme going like weird tales of waterfall this summer. We were just kind of following the bolts around. Okay, I've got two weird weird tales from the summer. Now we've been off for a couple of weeks now. Yeah, I do I do well, and I do have one thing to add to that, so I'll let you do yours and then I'll I got one small little snippet. Okay. Oh also, uh, side note, I was on the Ramsey Russell podcast, Always Duck Season Somewhere or Duck Season Somewhere podcast, like on one of these weeks that we were off. Like it came out on a Wednesday, I think. Um if you guys enjoy these Waterfall Wednesday podcasts, check that one out. I actually got a ton of really good feedback from that good. podcast I Sweet. did with Ramsey. A lot of people like reached out to me and uh, either said something like <laughs> they really enjoyed it or something along those lines. So, sure. uh, yeah, if anybody wants to hear that, go and check out the Ramsey Russell Duck Season Somewhere podcast. Um, on July 1st, I was running a pigeon hunt, and I saw a migrating flock of mallards heading northwest. It was like 20 mallards in that flock. 
Um, they were pretty far away. My duck ID is pretty solid. Like, through binoculars, body size, body shape, wing beat, pretty solid. I'm not saying it was 100% Mallards, but I'm pretty freaking sure it was Mallards. You know what I'm saying? Mm, like, I'd yep, be pretty no, surprised. I'm following. I'd be, they were very far away and through binoculars. Like, I was just looking, like, in the distance. I was like, what the hell is that flock of birds? Like, you don't really see flocks of birds, like, moving right now, you know, like summertime you just see tweety birds put the binocs up i'm like it's freaking mallards i'm like and they're headed northwest and it, they went horizon to horizon they migrated for sure from the southeast going to the northwest on july 1st and that was the first okay the fourth was on tuesday right so the, the fourth was the tuesday yeah third was monday sunday would be the second so my little tidbit on sunday night the second i was camping up in northern Minnesota, and I heard a migrating flock of honkers. Like, no shit. Heard the honks. I was like, did I just hear what I think I heard? I'm like, and then it got louder. I'm like, oh, yeah, those are geese for sure. And it wasn't and a pair. Fine. It wasn't a pair. Like, it was multiple. And, yeah, and it, the whole Doppler effect, right? It sounded really slow. Then it got loud straight overhead, and they were – Definitely going south to north, and then they just got quieter and quieter and quieter. Until and no visual on them. No, but it was at night. I, could, I was it was dark. Oh, I, could, I couldn't no see anything. Shit. Yeah, no. I would probably say if I had to guess, I didn't really look at my uh, phone or whatever to see what time it was. But if I had to guess, I would say it was probably right around midnight, give or take a half hour or so. Um, I'm like. On the night of July 2nd. On the night of July section, yeah, so maybe technically early July 3rd. July 3rd. Yeah, Okay. somewhere in that range. Okay, that's really interesting, and it leads into, I had two weird waterfall things to bring up. The number two weird thing that I saw, um, that I was going to bring up is uh, Nick Pashusta in, like, the Legends Outfitters little group Snapchat I'm in. He sent a video of a flock of Canada geese, like a flock landing in a field like on mm. july 4th and i was like what the fuck is that so there's a little bit of a debate amongst us in the group like could that not debate but just like questions that we have you know what i mean like yeah un- unanswerable questions like a are we witnessing a group of very late molters that have not molted yet like a group of adults um I was thinking it was more likely even that this was a family group from down south, like that had been born six weeks before, you know, our Canada geese get born, that were born down like in in Illinois Illinois or Missouri. Early hatch. Like, no, well, not early. It's not early. Well, not early for them, but like, yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. They were just born in a southern latitude and then migrated up here because they could fly already. Okay, that could which be. is interesting that you heard geese on July 2nd and then Nick saw these geese on July 4th. Now, the earliest that I've ever seen a flock of Canada geese fly somewhere and land in a field of any kind was on July 10th. Now, the second earliest I've ever seen geese do that is like, like July 25th. Like there's a huge freaking gap of like yeah. two weeks or more. And there's some years 
where I don't see my first flock of geese like flying into a like flying somewhere into an agricultural field or just flying. I'm just, I'm just airborne geese until like the very couple, first couple days of August. That's happened to me too. Like we're you know, it's either late July, early August, but now I've got one instance in my life. There's one time I've heard about Canada geese on July 4th, now another one from you on July 3rd, and then on, with my own eyes on July 10th. What the fuck are these birds doing? I, well, <laughs> I have questions. I don't have answers. But we can definitely wildly speculate, as we often do here on the Waterfall Wednesday. <laughs> and my wild speculation is failed nesters, maybe? Okay, but that doesn't explain. Did the failed nesters, like, get back into a flock? And then well, the yeah. failed nesters also got a molt. If you think about so, it, so failed nesters, I, right, they, they tried to do a clutch, maybe two. And this would be about the time, like, maybe they failed one in early May. And they tried to do another one early June. They failed or got predators wiped them out or whatever and then yeah so then they're gonna do you know they're like well, all right, well that didn't work we're gonna eat we're gonna do that and then other failed nesters kind of find them and they just build up and maybe once they get to a certain number whatever you know like i don't know 18 let's just throw out a random uh number um then they're like you know what let's dip let's let's go where that grass is good and let's get out of here and we'll molt somewhere else and so you're saying that these are pre-molting birds these birds have not molted yet that's kind of my theory okay all right i don't know i don't know i don't know either that's a good question are they pre-molt or are they post-molt they're flying on july 4th all right july 3rd july 4th july 10th we got three instances of birds flying when birds should not be flying so that's just my my biggest question is like okay are they pre-molt or post-molt that's the number one thing i'd like to know and then, like, also, like, what are they? Are they family units? Are they failed nesters? Are they um, non-breeders, you know, a.k.a. molt migrants? Like, what are we looking yeah, at here, I guess and why they, is this happening? I guess they could be, I guess they could be post-molt. You know, maybe they're molting while they're trying to raise young or trying to sit on a nest or something. That's possible. But either way, well, I, I think I've reached a, a point of no return as far as, well, we can't have, we can't, it's too late to try to raise something now. Not that they're thinking logically, but let's just say their biological clock or whatever, you know, they're just, they reach a point where it's like, okay, well, breeding or reproducing is not happening this year. And now that we got, and maybe it is postal, now that we regained our ability to fly, let's get the hell out of here and go where there's better food, you know? Right. That's very possible. I feel like that's a pretty legit scenario. Yeah. All right. Well, we're not going to have. Like, an do we know? Do we gonna, know how long it takes? It. <laughs> do we know how long it takes? Can we find any information on how long it takes for a goose to successfully molt from not being able to fly to being able to fly? Like, what is that yeah. time frame? Is it two I've weeks? Re- is it one week? Is it three weeks? Fuck! I've read it right. If I've read it before, but if I were to just regurgitate something right now off the top of my head, it likely be. You know what I mean? Just. I know that, but I definitely don't. <laughs> That's never stopped <laughs> us before. <laughs> I'm going to Google it. How long does it do take? It. I can't. Do it. Google it. Ask Jeeves. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? I know. Four this. to five weeks. After nesting. Oh, wow. After That's a nesting. long time. After nesting, geese undergo an annual molt. And it ha- 
I've always known it's after nesting because you'll see geese with baby, like baby goslings, little ones, right? And they can still fly to, to kick you or to chase down little kids. That gets you, right? <laughs> we've all, yeah. We've all, yeah. We've all seen videos. We've all seen videos where the, the, um, yeah, we've all seen those videos where the parents of baby geese are still able to yes. attain flight, but they lose that, I think, shortly thereafter. So they go through a four to five week flightless period where they shed and regrow their outer wing feathers. So, hmm. Those birds that are flying on July 4th would have had to have begun molting on June 4th at a... So, yeah, that seems unlikely. It does seem unlikely because June 4th, we were st- I was still seeing molt migrants pushing through, um, pushing through the uh, cities until like June... F- I didn't see fuzzballs up here until middle June. Yeah, it was like June 14th was the last flock of molt migrants that I saw this year. Also, but I did notice when I went to Green Bay um, for my cousin's wedding that the geese I saw down in the parks there were well into molting. Like they had no, it looked like they they were growing feathers back. Hmm. That was on... June 17th, there was geese that were heavily, like, deep, deep, deep into the molting process. And you know what? It might just be like if we talk to a guy from St. Louis, he might even say something like, oh, yeah, dude, geese down here molt, like, in mid-May or something. Right, yeah, yeah. But maybe I'm wrong. Uh, No, I'm going back to my speculation of that they're flying to molt. Like, maybe failed nesters are like, all right, let's get out of here. Let's go. Because there would be enough time then. So five I would have five weeks say... five weeks is a month and a week, right? So beginning of June or beginning of July, they could then molt all of July and one week in August. And about the time we really start seeing birds hit fields again in like late August, like second to third week in August is when we start seeing like local hatches start hitting cut hay cut small grains and then early august you start seeing your first molt mig- like legit molt migrators coming back south that gives the whole so that gives you enough time frame to go to wherever they're going in canada to molt plenty of time to get their flight feathers and then make a move back oh absolutely um, i would say it's most likely that they are pre-molt just because of how early they would have had to begin that molting process. The molting process would have had to have begun around the same time the molt migrants are moving to yeah, would have Canada. Had, yeah, that doesn't make any – yeah, you're right. That doesn't make any sense because we really start um, seeing molts, like the first big molt migrators, like late May, right, is like when we start yeah, seeing them start pushing May. more. And that's yeah. when they would have to start molting. Unless these birds are really from a different southern region that we're less familiar with the timing of their life Also cycles. true. Also true. Which, but also the a contrast to that point is, I used to have this theory. You know how like geese always tend to disappear in late August. Like people will even have feed fields, and then geese will um like a few days before opener, geese will leave the feed feed fields, and like yeah. there are. There, I used to think there was big movements happening in late August with Canada geese, and um, I scoured a bunch of 
expanding data to do some confirmation bias on that, you know, like find the information <laughs> I was looking for. You're trying, I, you're trying to prove your, you're trying to prove your hypothesis. Yeah, I'm trying to prove my <laughs> hypothesis. And I don't, you know, this was a couple of years back when I was really looking into this. Um, but I do remember having the feeling of disappointment because my theory seemed to not be so true. Um, it is true that Canada geese after like the family units, they do do a little bit of uh, preseason movement, but not as big as I was thinking. Although some do big movements, some, some do big movements, but most are local. But like, as far as like, I'm scouting geese, shit, if a family of geese moves 25 miles from where your scouting area is, then they might as well be on fucking Mars. You know right, what I mean? Right, right, like right, right, those, right. But if a goose moves 25, 35, 45 miles away from like the extended range of your scouting area, you are never seeing those geese again. You know, but we've, we've also talked in the past about the green wave too, and that starts in the north. So I wonder if there isn't what a, do you mean? a north. Well, so like as uh, small grains come out, they kind of come out in the more northern parts first. No, no, no. Small grains come out in the southern states first because they get planted first. Well, I'm talking like in the state of Minnesota. I see, uh, I see fields being cut further north than I do further south. Uh, no, the fields further no, south got planted first. I take that and back. Got... No. I, and that, okay, and that's what I always thought, too, was because, okay, I had a couple of youth waterfowl days and youth waterfowl weekends and goose openers and August goose seasons, like, in North Dakota. I'm mixing up a whole bunch of different events in my life, but they all happened before September, like, 12th or 14th, yeah. where I saw mallards feeding in wheat fields in either Minnesota or North Dakota, and I never saw the, uh, anybody hunt ducks in a wheat field on opening day in either state, North Dakota. You know, you go like two to three weeks later. But wait a second. The mallards have disappeared and they are killing the fuck out of them in Saskatchewan on September 25th in the in the wheat field. So, like, I always figured they chased the combines north. And I thought the same thing was happening. So we're talking about mallards now. But I thought the geese were doing the same thing, but I think the ducks are doing it to a larger extent. I think banding data kind of um, holds pretty solid that family groups stay pretty close to their summer area. Not like, you know, they could move 30, 40, 50 miles and be gone to you. Right. But they haven't, they haven't yeah. moved to Saskatchewan guess, like a lot of mallards would. Yeah, I have to amend what I was saying. So what I, I guess I was kind of getting as what you said. I was wrong, but but what I was trying to get to was that I think early in the season where like your, your birds disappear, they're actually moving North, like following that green line. Because right. yeah, because some of those really early ones you'll see, you know, I'll have my eye on a small grain field like all summer long. And then all of a sudden they'll cut it like the first or second week of August. And I was like, damn it. It's going to be too high. It's going to be the regrowth is going to be too tall by the time opener comes in. They're not going to be in there. Um, and yeah, that moves North. So you know, we have this kind of mentality that we think in the fall birds are migrating south, but I think early, the the first couple of weeks in early season, I, I I feel like there's a northern push before then they start moving back south. Right. Yeah. And I I I think I was just um when I'm saying like I was disappointed and or that the my theory wasn't correct. It's just that the movements weren't as 
um, dramatic as I was thinking. They definitely, definitely, definitely happen. Yeah. And, and, ge- and geotransmitter data, too. You can even look at the, the study from uh, Winnipeg, from the, all their geotransmitters, they, those red ones that they've got around there. Um, and I was talking to Bob with OK McElsterders, our very, very, very great sponsor of this podcast. <laughs> and, dude, Bob's just a really, really intelligent goose hunter, right? He's like... He was just telling, we were just having a casual conversation about geese. He's like, they go north, but they they go north and then they come back south. And if you look at the geotag data from that Winnipeg study, they go north, but it's not like to the Hudson Bay, like in late August. They go north, but it's like a hundred or less miles. I don't want to have to eat my own words there. It's not that far. They make a jump and then they come back. I think we also think um, very binary in that we think of the bird uh, movements as north and south. Like that there couldn't possibly be some east-west just food movements, you know, that uh, they fed out the field they're in and there's a, let's just say you're in eastern uh, Minnesota and across the St. Croix River, there's, you know, some fresh fields coming out in Wisconsin and they make that lateral move over. Right, You know, and right. again, like okay. you said, 30 miles for us may as well be New Mexico because you're not going to see those birds scouting. They're just gone, right? Right, and, and I will bring up another point too is uh, I was also desperately seeking confirmation bias, you know, this was a couple years ago. On this theory, which does hold a little bit true, but I found out that North Dakota and South Dakota is doing, you know, they had a lot of press on this GPS transmitter study they're doing on mallards, specifically looking at their late August movements um, or uh, post-breeding move, late summer movements with GPS transmitters. And I emailed the um, researcher on that study and I was like, hey, this is what I think. I think they're going north because I saw these ducks. I've seen ducks feeding in these fields in southern latitudes in August and in early September, but I've never seen it in late September. Then I explained all this to her, and she emailed me back, and she's like, actually, your theory is really solid, um, but the GPS transmitter data is not um, bearing out the results that I think would Mm. confirm it. She said, yeah, she said, about half of the ducks were going north with the combines with, from their GPS transmitter data. So she's like, you're only partially right because the other half of the ducks are going everywhere. They're like east, west, southwest. Hmm. They're just searching south. for food. They're scattering. And then yeah. she says that it's all right. Now, this was a, this was a couple of years ago, kind of like right when that study was getting first going. And she also said to me, like, hey, this study is really new. We still got a couple more years to go on it. Um, This is just some, these are just my observations that I've been, you know, like looking at myself. But um, she said, we have a lot more questions than we have answers looking at this. Like she goes, your theory is is interesting, but uh, it looks like it's only partially correct. And then why we have ducks, they had ducks like going from South Dakota to like Ohio, like in late August. They're like, why would a duck do that, Nick? Like, well, I, uh, I also don't have an answer yeah, for that. Yeah, well, we have to keep in mind that, you know, wildlife, as they say, are unpredictable, right? You hear that in pretty much every nature program. But uh, there is some truth to it. So, you know, as 
as humans, I think we like our stuff black and white, binary, like it's this and then it's this. This is fact and this is fact. But I think there it's a spectrum. So, yeah, maybe there's a percentage, maybe it's the largest percentage of mallards that move north at the combines. But then you're going to have your outliers that do this and they do that. And for whatever reason, who knows? Unless you, you're an animal psychic, you never, you're never going to know. You know, right. I, and I'm still, when we've talked about this ad nauseum, where it's like, how do birds know that there is just, a fresh cut field 25 miles to the northeast or northwest or west or whatever the direction, you know, like how do they find it? Is it just a collective of goose language? You know, they mix and match with flocks and one flock, one, one bird in that flock knows about it and he's the leader. I still maintain, and I want to, and I want to study, funded, and done for this. So, uh, you know, whoever does those things, I think that birds have a far greater smell than we give them credit for. You know, if you think of like vultures and stuff like that, you know, if you look at a goose's like head structure, that nose goes all the way through. So it's almost like a fish's gill. I think they're constantly receiving signals. And thank God, if that's true, that they don't equate the smell of humans with danger like deer do. Because can you imagine how hard waterfall would be to hunt if you had to like control your scent <laughs> like deer hunters do? They'd be like nearly impossible to hunt. Um, but I think they yeah. use their sense of smell to find food resources. I've heard you're not the first person to bring that up. I mean, I think Phil Robertson brings that up. Uh, Field Hudnall brings that up in um, in uh, some in an old video. A lot of people like. All right, we we know that birds find food in a really creepy, uh, almost psychic type of way, and there's only almost like no other way to describe it besides smell. I'm not willing to go there. I'm not willing to say it's definitely smell. It's definitely something. <laughs> That's a good non-committal way of putting yourself. It's definitely something. It's fucking definitely something. It's de- like you read about these these baiting, like these baiting manuals they had from uh, that outlaw gunner book. Such a good book. They talk about how they would try to evade federal authorities. You know that would find their bait piles by sinking big tires. And then uh, filling the inside of the rim with corn. So, like, mm. it's one of the things, like, I always thought, too, about, like, when I was feeding mallards in my front yard, was it was mostly a visual thing. Like, ducks were mostly using, uh, like, they would fly around it and look, because I would have a shitload of corn out there, and then it would get snowed on. And if it got snowed on, I really didn't, I didn't get ducks coming in there landing to dig out the corn they knew was there, Right. Sure. That can also so, cover the but, smell, though, too. Yeah, it also could. But, it, you know, what else covers the smell? Being underwater. True. So, like, now you got guys, like, back in the 20s and 30s when baiting was legal or whatever, like, filling the inside of these tire rims with corn so you can't see them from the air. That's the point. Like, so the planes couldn't see them. Like, so now my theory of, like, oh, the ducks must see it. Because when it gets covered with snow, they don't see it, and they don't go in there, and they dig for it. Well, uh, then how do they know to go land in the water and go over to that freaking sunken tire? Well, because as the corn gets wet and starts to break down and ferment, it's going to give off gases, which are going to rise the surface, and they go into the and air. Then smel- and then smell, right? Yeah. And then you're going to have those gas and to release into the air, for sure. 
<laughs> so what we need to do is crack that code, and we could have like scent wicks that we could put no, out in the field. Somebody, it's not somebody actually baiting. <laughs> no, somebody did this. Somebody really? did this. It was yeah, it was in an old Max Prairie Wing magazine, and uh, I, if I had to guess the year, ah, fuck, early to mid two thousand. Um, you know, I, I basically, when I was in my youth, I, I basically memorized those old Max Prairie Wings catalogs. And there was, for a couple of years, somebody selling a bag of scent bait, basically, for ducks. Hmm. Like, open this bag of corn scent and the ducks will come screaming. Like, and obviously it didn't catch on because somebody came up with it already and... Did it not catch on because of bad marketing or did it not catch on because it didn't work? What I was thinking is, like, you could just get corn dust. Like, how could you call it baiting if it was just, like, corn, like, super fine dust that you just, like, wait for a good thermal and then spread it out and just let it float? That's true. I don't know. It's so much speculation. (laughs) Well, we're supposed to just have, like, a couple of little, like, short things we were talking about then talk about pigeons which um pigeons are going good um we can now move on to uh, the final thing uh <laughs> um, <laughs> we're already over the pigeons conversation did you shot <laughs> did you shoot a, a band recently that i see i think we've got a couple of them yeah yeah, yeah two on two on hunts i've been on one with phil and one uh on a hunt uh two days ago no no no, no not two days ago um was it Saturday's hunt? Yeah, it was Saturday's hunt. Um, we shot a banded pigeon, a 2023. Mm. And uh, so I ran three guided pigeon hunts so far. Um, we have a 70 bird average as of now. Jesus. I've been scouting like a maniac. Um, I do think the winter has been pretty hard in this area on the pigeons. Um, I'm trying not to you know, screw over my August as well. You know, as much as I'm driving around looking for pigeons, I'm looking for those certain spots that can, that can maintain a shoot, you know? Yeah. Yep. And trying to be careful about it, but also trying to make a little bit of money. Try not trying to make a little bit of money without fucking myself too bad. It's always the balancing act. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, this weekend, uh, I won't be running any pigeon hunts. I got one. I, I got a good shoot lined up for Thursday. If anybody hears this on Wednesday and you want to go on a good shoot, it's an hour east of the Twin Cities uh, around my turf. I got a spot I found. Would be a pretty nice spot to shoot. Um, and uh, this weekend I'm going to be going to the um, very first ever calling contest, duck and goose calling contest in Montana. So Ooh. I'm really excited to go. Uh, be doing that it's um gonna be at the sitka headquarters that's pretty dope yeah dude i'm gonna hey, look it up on your pigeon hunts are you are you uh uh are you on a layout lines or what are you doing i'm running all layout lines so far okay just curious i didn't know if you're panel blinds sitting in a cattle pen what, what you're doing behind an old rusty truck that was set out in the field i didn't know what you're you're uh how you're doing it? Um, so far, I've just been running all all layout lines. Um, I've been doing some experimentations with uh, like, I've always been a low spinner guy, right? Mm-hmm. 
um, me and Phil Schmidt have been talking about this too a lot. Like, best typically in my mind, the best number of spinners to use on a pigeon hunt is zero, one, or two, depending on the situation. Now, last year, I actually did a couple of hunts where I ran six, and on those on two hunts in my mind in particular that I ran six decoys, six spinning wing decoys, the hunts basically could not have gone better than they did. So I can say on those two hunts, having six, six spinners out did not detriment the success of my hunt in any meaningful way. Like on those hunts, I didn't even move it. I didn't move any spinners. I didn't click anything off. I, you know, I just set out six spinners and piled up dead pigeons as they collected. And goddamn, did they collect mm. on those, on those two particular hunts. But then this year, I started a hunt out with six spinners and had a couple flocks come out. This is on my first guided pigeon hunt that I did. We shot 108, but I there was indications on a couple of flocks that they did not like those six spinners. I ran out there. I took five down. We dropped down to one spinner, and it completely changed the way that pigeons were working the decoys. I mean, they it went... it improved our decoying by so much so i know on that hunt having six spinners was detrimental to our success in the beginning right so i'm just trying to work i've been just doing some experiments about like when is using like more spinners better um and even going back to those hunts from last year when i was using six spinners and like they really couldn't have gone better than they did but would they have just turned out just as good if I was using zero, one, or two? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I wish you could just rewind time and just do experiments. Yeah, on that's too. that's yeah, that's the thing. It's like it's it. There's no way to do it scientific. We've talked about this ad nauseum too, where it's like you can't. You know, it's like how many decoys is the right amount of decoys? Like you can't like reset the situation. Like okay, geese, go back to your roost. And now I'm only going to put out twelve decoys. And not call. Let's see what happens. And go. Right, right, like, you, you, right, you, can't, yeah. you, you can't do it. You can't repeat That's... it in the lab setting. So you only have anecdotal evidence to go off of. Yeah, people are like, what would you do with the time machine? I would just run my hunt back <laughs> over and over. Like, you wouldn't go see the pyramids getting built? Like, fuck no. I don't want to meet in. I don't want to see those aliens build them, motherfuckers, man. I just want to run these hunts. I could back figure, and forth. I could I could go back and bet on sports games. I could go figure out what the Powerball number is. No, I'm gonna go back and just reset this field as many different ways I can and see which works the best. Yep. <laughs> oh, God. oh God. All right. Well, anyways, um, let's wrap it up, man. All right. All right. That's all you That's had. Good. You were gonna talk about gear. You didn't want to talk about gear. Dude, all right, so here's the thing. I'm looking at the gear issue right now. I've got the Ducks Unlimited gear issue right now, and I see shit that I want to talk shit about. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe we should just keep this a positive episode because I right. see stuff. I'm like, that's <laughs> fucking stupid. We'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk shit next year. <laughs> that just means there isn't anything great new coming out. That's what that means because these companies have to sell product. No, they have to have something new, but is it revolutionary? No, Probably no. not. There's, there's cool shit coming out, dude. There's cool shit in here, too. Um, the Ducks Unlimited gear issue just came out. I think the Wildfowl gear issue just came out. All right, there, so there, it looks like 
It looks like they're coming back out with like the old school mossy oak shadow grass. That gets my dick hard. Here's here's the here's the call to action for all our, our listeners. If you don't already have it, go get it. Get the DU uh, gear issue. Look it over. Form your wrong opinions, and we'll tell you what the right opinions are <laughs> next week. Um, <laughs> also, if you did not get the Ducks Unlimited gear issue, uh, jump online and join Ducks Unlimited. It's only thirty-five bucks. There like, you go. It's uh, actually worth the magazines. Totally worth the magazines. And I actually just got a letter from Delta Waterfowl like today or yesterday that said that my uh, subscription or my membership had expired with Delta. So I got to go. I think they're also 35 bucks. I try to do it at the same time every year. So I probably need to update my DU as well. And so, yeah, if you, if you also need to update your Ducks Unlimited and Delta uh, memberships, here's just a friendly reminder to do it. It's uh, it's a good thing. It's a good way to spend 70 bucks. Honestly, it really is. All right. Well, there you go. And, uh, Oh, give us all our, our sponsors. Um, if you guys are trying to get better at learn acoustic call, you need to be taking every avenue to possibly get better. That means using new goose calls, trying out new goose calls. Um, try out the Nick Johnson signature series if you never have. I've been tuning them up like crazy, um, getting them ready for summer here, getting ready for all the trade shows. Um, should be having some out in Bozeman next week. Um, or this weekend, I should say, um, try out the Goose Tech app. That would be great if uh, if you would download the Goose Tech app, and if it would be great, it would be great if it helped you learn how to goose call. Use YouTube, use all that stuff. Um, what else do we got? Pacific Custom Calls got four Oak logo. Hammock Outfitters. Oak Hammock Outfitters. If you guys also, dude, what day is it today? It's the eleventh, dude. The fifteenth is the last day you can draw for your Manitoba oh, license. Oh shit. We should have mentioned that in the beginning. Get your get your draw. Talk to Bob. I just talked to Bob on the phone yesterday for a half hour, actually. We were just BSing uh, about upcoming shows. He's going to be at Game Fair. Um, he's going to be sharing a booth with the uh, Muskrat Hut guy, mm. which I think is, like, across the aisle from, like, the CNS booth. Find the Muskrat Hut guy. Find Oak Hammock Outfitters. Tell him you've heard about uh, his outfit on the – Full Scale Outdoors, Waterfall Wednesday podcast. I bet he'd get a kick out of that because I still haven't told him. That he's <laughs> a sponsor. No, because he listened, he listened to uh, the Ramsey Russell podcast. And he goes, he goes, I listen. And Ramsey hunts with Bob, too. And so he's like, I listened to you on Ramsey Russell, Nick. That was a great episode. He goes, no mention of Bob, though. I was like, if only you knew. I yeah, fucking mention you, you every week. <laughs> every week. <laughs> But I'm not going to tell them because people who are listening to this should tell them for me. Please. Yes, absolutely. I agree. Just, yeah. yeah if meet Bob. Go soak up a little bit of his fucking goose hunting knowledge. That guy, is, that guy knows how to kill some freaking geese. Um, anyways, so Okamic Outfitters, Four Loco Energy slash alcohol <laughs> drinks. Um... <laughs> That's about it, man. Yeah, That's about it. Let's wrap got. it up. Yeah. Try right. out them. Try, try out those specific custom calls, signature series, that goose tech app. Talk to. We'll talk next week. I'll, let's do a. I'll do a recap of the uh, Bozeman show. I'm going to be judging uh, two sanctioned duck calling contests, and I'm also judging the open goose. I'm really okay. looking forward to participating. Re- All right, next week recap and gear shit talk. Deer shit talk. Gear, gear with the oh, G. Gear. 
Gear. Gear. Gear. Gotcha. Gotcha. Shit talk episode All next right. week. All right, cool. Until until then, later. Deuces. <laughs>